Thank Ooh. goodness. New meaning to spice up your life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or spice up your death if you're eating rotten meat. <laughs> I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books, or short stories, with a special guest. This month we're reading Once in Future, or The Art of the Deal. <laughs> and, and our guest is arts journalist, critic, and broadcaster, Richard Watts. Welcome, Richard. Good morning. Hello. Lovely to be joining you for a Pratchett conversation. I haven't read any Pratchett for ages, so it was nice to dip my toe back into the water. And what a choice this one is. Like, it's an unusual one. Yeah. Have you read any of his short stories previously, or are you more of a, a Discworld reader? The latter. I discovered Pratchett, like a lot of people, because I was an avid Dungeons & Dragons player at the time. The Colour of Magic was released, I think I read it in about 1984, and was just kind of like, who is this man who clearly knows his fantasy enough to take the piss out of everything from H.P. Lovecraft to Robert E. Howard and everything in between? And so I'm pretty sure I would have read the first four or five Discworld novels and then kind of drifted off. So short stories are entirely new to me, which uh, is a, a lovely discovery to be able to find the kind of wit and intelligence that was on display in the Discworld novels in a more compact form. A lot of his short stories really feel like things he's trying out as ideas for bigger things. And as we'll talk about, even this story would have become one of those things if he'd had his way. But this, though, because it didn't get turned into a longer novel or anything, it's just this lovely sort of little bit of unique pratchetness, which is such a lot of fun. But Richard, our listeners might not know of your work, which is ridiculous, but, you know, some of them are from very far away from Melbourne. What's your background when it comes to sort of fantasy and sci-fi? And I mean, you're a Dungeons and Dragons player, but that's not the end of your involvement with that sort of realm. No. So a um, bit of background. Born on Jar Jar Wurrung country, uh, Bendigo. Grew up down uh, in Gippsland on Gurnai Kurnai country. Uh, and that's where I discovered Dungeons and Dragons, which was a kind of follow on from a childhood preoccupation with I think probably not unusually for a lot of nerd children, you start out going, dinosaurs are cool. And then from dinosaurs, you go on to dragons and sea monsters uh, and ghost stories and, and the like. I must have been about probably seven or eight when my mum started telling me the story of The Hobbit on a family holiday at Phillip Island, uh, which for non-Melburnians is uh, and non-Australians is located a short distance from Melbourne, where I now live, on Wurundjeri country. But she described it so vividly, and particularly talking about um, Bilbo Baggins and Smaug the dragon, that I remember looking into a small rocky cave and seeing eyes peering back at me, which is probably something I just completely imagined, or it was possibly a fairy penguin kind of being slightly <laughs> terrified and wondering why I was peering into its hole. Um, but... 
I was apparently so enthralled that as soon as we got back to our family home, which at that stage probably would have been up at Narragan in the Streslecky Hills, mum and dad say as soon as the car was parked, I jumped out of the car. They thought I was running inside to go to the bathroom. I didn't come out to help them unpack. They found me cross-legged in the hallway next to a bookcase reading The Hobbit because I'd gone straight inside to grab it off the bookshelf. And that set off an absolute lifelong love of fantastic fiction and literature, which then led me also into history and mythology. Weirdly enough, I didn't end up working as, I don't know, a fantasy writer or a historian. I'm an arts journalist, so I'm still fascinated by stories, by the art of stories and the way they move us and what they say about us as well. Currently in Melbourne, I work for a website called Arts Hub. Uh, I'm the national performing arts editor there, doing a lot of hard news rather than kind of soft profile stuff. Uh, and I do a weekly program on the community radio station, 3RRR as well, where I pontificate about the cultural sector. <laughs> Listener, you may not know this, but this is a fantastic get for our podcast because Richard really is one of the, I don't know, what's the right word, Liz? Titans? What was that? Icons? I said titans. You can oh, say icon. Titan, icon, legend. What, what, don't you have an official treasure? Like, aren't you called like a living treasure or something? What's the official title that you have? I'm a Melbourne Fringe Festival living legend. Living um, legend. That was an yes. award a couple of years ago. An old friend described me as an art czar, which I quite like. <laughs> except I don't have the, the furry hat and the, the sled drawn by kind of prancing white horses across a snowy landscape or anything like that. But that's Yet. True. Yet. Yet. That's true, Liz. That's true. Yeah. And that may come. Yeah. You should put all of this on a business card. It'd have to be a big business card. But <laughs> that's what you need a sled for. Make it a bookmark. <laughs> That'd be very useful. Yes. You say you've gone into history and mythology, and this is one of the reasons why we thought of you for this story, because I know you are a big lover of all things Arthurian and the Matter of Britain, as they call it. Because I'm I'm a minor Arthur nerd. I did study at university. They had one subject about King Arthur, and I took it, and I don't think they have it anymore. Um, but that was long enough ago that we were still considering that maybe there was a possibility there was a real Arthur, which is kind of fallen out of favour amongst historians now a bit more. But uh, anyway, we'll we'll get to that. But so I have a little bit of background in it. But you, you're a big lover of all things Arthurian. I am, or I think it's probably safer to say I was. I am still mm. enamoured by and fascinated by all things Arthurian. I've yet to watch the new film, The Green Knight, which has just dropped on an Australian streaming service, but I'm probably going to watch that this afternoon because it feels like a nice segue from what we're going to be talking about today. But yeah, for many years, I absorbed everything Arthurian that I could, novels, short stories, historical studies. Uh, I played the role-playing game Pendragon, um, mm. huh. which is a fantastic game, soon to have a new edition, which is kind of exciting for anybody out there who's a, an RPG fan. Uh, never wrote for that. I wrote for a couple of other Chaosian games, Call of Cthulhu and Stormbringer. But as happens, I think interests wane over time, unless you're a dedicated academic whose life is focused on a particular subject. I think uh, my bookshelves are a good way to illustrate me and my life because you can go okay here's the collection where richard was really interested in vampires and the next shelf is here's the collection of arthurian novels and then there's all the hp lovecraft stuff sitting on top of that and the michael moorcock shelf for example so um yeah it's, it's like a, a form of literary archaeology exploring what's on my shelves uh, I've moved often enough that mine are all jumbled up. It's like someone's crushed up the mountain and all the layers are in. But if you're a good geologist, you could still work it out, I reckon. All right. Well, 
Let's get into the story. As you would know, listener, if you're a regular listener, what we normally do when we read a book is we read the blurb before we get into discussing the plot of the book. There are no blurbs for the short stories, uh, but we do like to read the little introduction that Terry has written to give some context. And I'm going to read the one for Once and Future. There's a lot more of this deep on a hard drive somewhere. It may yet become a novel, but it started as a short story in Camelot, edited by Jane Yolen in 1995. I'd wanted to write it for nearly ten years. I really ought to dig out those old discs again. Sorry to say, if I ever do find those discs, they will almost certainly be in the wrong format. But I still really like the idea of the person who pulled Excalibur from the stone happening to be female. Uh, and that spoils a bit of the story, frankly. I wish I hadn't read that footnote before I'd read the story. But yeah. you hopefully you have read it, listener. But this is written in the first person. It's quite rare for Pratchett. Like, he doesn't write a lot in the first person. And it's this weird mix of a kind of fantasy, kind of historical but then some more traditional sci-fi layered over the top. But we very quickly, after a bit of discussion of copper and copper wire, realise that we're listening to a fellow who is not Merlin, but Mervyn, who is currently, and this is, it's so interesting, because, again, you know, not writing in the first person very often, what we've got here is a sort of a in media res beginning, but then the narration of the story taking place, presumably in the mind of the character. We don't know who he's talking to. I, it's been so long since I've read anything in first person. It did throw me a little bit. I'm like, who are you telling this to? Uh, but anyway, that doesn't matter. He seems like the kind of guy who might keep a journal. Like, you know, the kind that you find after like a, an expedition goes missing and, and afterward you see, and it just trails off that kind of thing. So that was kind of the vibe of it to me. Like you're narrating it because if you are like a time traveler, as he turns out to be, I think you would keep a journal, like you would be like an explorer of sorts. So, tonally, that's how it felt to me. I agree, yeah. Liz. It struck me narratively as, although it's not explained, yeah, it's a Shackleton-style diary, or he's hoping one day to be rescued from this strange other timeline in which he's found himself. Uh, and so, yeah, maybe he's just collected notes. Maybe he's got a dictaphone on himself, which he never mentions, and he's just (laughs) occasionally and sporadically recording thoughts out loud as he, in this instance, is standing next to a a sword in an anvil on top of a rock waiting for (laughs) Arthur to come along. Yeah. And I mean, he he pretty much immediately gives the game away. He says he's standing on a switch. Um, We immediately know, okay, you've got an electromagnet. This is how it's done. This makes sense. This is great. The sort of more modern version of this now that people talk about more often is Thor's hammer because, of course, the Marvel movies have made Thor's story very popular. And in the Marvel Comics version, nobody else can lift his hammer unless they're worthy. And a few people have discussed making an electromagnet version that you could turn on. And I actually did discuss this with someone else and they realized it would be almost impossible to do safely in the modern world because everyone carries bits of metal on them all the time and it would like, you know, an electromagnet strong enough to hold a heavy metal hammer to the ground with enough force that you couldn't pick it up would also require an electromagnetic field strong enough that it would like scramble people's credit cards and phones and just destroy things generally. So it didn't end up happening, but it's such a cool idea. I'm just trying to think of a way to do it that wouldn't, like, if you had, like, a really heavy cement one covered in something metal, but that wouldn't work. So, no. Well, I think I think being inside the stone helps, you know, because there's some shielding there, whereas the hammer kind of has to lay flat on something, like it's just sitting there, whereas, the, you know, the sword is supposedly enclosed by the stone, or it's in an... It's, 
I've read so many versions of the myth that I don't know that I've actually read Le Mort d'Arthur for a long, long time. But it's in an anvil embedded in the stone? Hmm. Yep. It's a classic image. The sword shoved deep into the anvil and through the anvil into the stone itself. And in traditional Arthurian uh, mythology, it's in a courtyard of a major cathedral in T.H. White's The Once and Future King. I think it's Mm. one of the major London cathedrals, for example. Uh, And so already here, Pratchett is going, well, that version of it isn't going to work for my story because I have to situate it next to a rocky coast in order to get a wave generator to create the electricity to hold the sword in place (laughs) in this kind of strange time that he's found himself in. So I love the fact that Pratchett is, like any great storyteller, adapting any great legend over time. They get retold as they're required to. And he's just going, right, I'll take this bit and I'll take that bit and I'll justify why I'm not using this bit in order to fit the narrative of the, that he's created for us. It's a, it's a really, I wouldn't necessarily describe it as a brilliant piece of writing in some ways. And I, I can't speak to Pratchett's entire body of work, but I don't know whether this would be considered a major story, but it's an incredibly entertaining one. And it really shows the man's mind at play and his wit and his intelligence, in particular the way he grabs references and beautifully and seamlessly weaves them all together. In terms of form, I really enjoy it and I agree it's really entertaining, but it feels like it's the kind of short story that you can only write and only get published if you're already a name. That doesn't mean that it's bad. It doesn't say anything about the quality necessarily, but it means that he's able to take risks and do things that, like say he was just going in under a pseudonym and trying to get this published, I don't think he would be able to. But Mm. because he's Terry Pratchett, because he's presumably been asked for this anthology to write this, he's been able to write something that I don't think there's many short stories like this because they only get written because there's a space for them. If that makes sense? Yeah. Yeah. They're good and they're unusual, but it's not something I think that would get picked up if it weren't written by Terry Pratchett or if it weren't commissioned, but I also don't think it's something he would have written had that not been an opportunity provided to him. That makes sense. It's interesting because he talks about having had the idea and then, you know, he's written this short story version and then he's written more about it and he's like got excited about the idea and thought maybe one day I'll turn this into a novel. And and look, I do just want to acknowledge it's kind of bittersweet reading mm. that introduction because that introduction was originally written for Once More with Footnotes, which is the much earlier collection of his short writing. And then he's added the footnote later, which we'll come back to when we get to the questions. And it's just sad sort of hearing him talk about maybe I'll write this someday. And you're like, well, you you won't now, which is, you know, it's it, whatever was left of this longer version. You know, the hard drive has been crushed under a steamroller as per the stipulation of his will. My note about that was may yet than an arrow to novel than a sad face. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. But I think you're right, though, because I think everyone's interested in Terry Pratchett's take on King Arthur. Whereas if you just pitched this to any old publication, they'd be like, we've seen 100 King Arthur stories. I mean, I think it's quite clever. But it is also reminiscent of other stories. Uh, but look, we should talk more a bit more about the plot and, and establish that because we will have some listeners who haven't had a chance to read it. So let's talk a bit more about Mervyn because he's the central character in this and I kind of love him. He's sitting there, he's, he's pretending to be this great wizard. I mean, he, he hasn't always been pretending, but he's sort of embraced this role that's been thrust upon him. And he's waiting for someone to come and, and pull the sword out of the stone. But he tells us his story. He is a time traveller. But not just like a time traveller who's uh, accidentally travelled through time or an explorer who's like, I'm going to be the first person to travel through time. He comes from a place where time travel has been invented, but 
lots of people can't do it because it has a terrible side effect of scrambling their brains. But he's one of the people who isn't affected by it that way. And so he took a job and he kind of, I kind of love the way he talks about it as though it's just another gig, you know, like I could have done other things, but I ended up being a time traveler because it turned out I had the knack for it. It was kind of like the long world, like he's like a natural stepper in some ways, like there's kind of like a feeling of that to it. But I love that it's kind of like he's commissioned to go back and check things for people who are debating historical accuracy. And there's this thing that sometimes happens in stories, where like specifically science fiction or like anything with magical realism, where someone can do a thing and I want that to be real so badly. Oh, why can't we do Because the idea of someone being able to go back and just fact check history is wonderful. Also horrible, but wonderful. Yeah. Made me wistful. I think one of the other things I love about this is we're kind of in between in our course of reading the books at the moment, the two Discworld books that probably most directly deal with issues of time travel and timey-wiminess being Thief of Time and one of the next ones we'll do in the near future is Nightwatch. And I think Pratchett doesn't necessarily directly deal with time travel that often. And so, this sort of take of, it's a job, you know, you've got to be prepared and you've got to think about all the possible ways that it could go wrong. I really love that. The world building in such simple lines and phrases is one of the things that got to me with this story that I just thought, oh, that's really clever. The fact that, yeah, we get a, a brief discussion about time travellers' grammar. Can you remember something that hasn't happened yet? And I love <laughs> the idea that uh, and it's turned up in other science fiction properties as well. But how do you describe past events while you're living them before they've happened? Um, yeah. If you want to talk about something that happens in 1800, the, the crowning of Charlemagne, and you're in 500, that notion of going, oh, it will, maybe, won't, didn't, has happened, kind of. So, <laughs> and that kind of complicated idea is just kind of encapsulated in just a quick, simple phrase. But then also in terms of that world building, and yes, Ben, you just mentioned that Mervyn is, the quote is, I'm just an average guy in every respect, that I'm the one in 10,000 who can time travel and still end up with all his marbles. It's kind of like that's the selection criteria for a job. Great tick, we've got that. So he's fleshing out this idea of a, a time traveler's organization, a society as a job. And then they're taught to navigate by the stars and given a copy of Stoffler's Craters of the Moon by estimated creation date <laughs> as a way of that's working so out where they are in Earth history. And again, it's kind of it's a throwaway line. But those little details, incidental details, tell us so much without having to be contrived, expanded, long-winded, kind of, they're just quick ideas, but they speak to the creativity of Terry Pratchett's mind, the way that he can just flesh out background so quickly and so effectively and make you think there really is room here for this to grow into a novel. There's so much depth and potential in this story for further expansion. So, yeah, it's a shame that it never grew out of the form that it is, but it's still a lovely little story. Mm. I had this sort of gut feeling while reading it that we would never learn that much more about the world that Mervyn's come from if he had written into a novel. Like, it would be all be about what's happening now. And you'd maybe get a little bit more backstory when it became relevant, but we wouldn't ever have any flashbacks to him getting the mission or, you know, you might just hear him refer to a trick he learned because he got stuck in such and such a situation. But I also love just the way that he talks very freely about, you know, I had this second gig to go back and check this same fact in history and I'd already figured out where I was going to stand so I wouldn't see myself. Like, just, just great. Just lovely. I really enjoyed that. 
I also agree with you, Liz, you mentioned that it feels very much like the Long Earth books. So, Rich, I don't know if you've read these. This is the science fiction series that Pratchett wrote with Stephen Baxter, which is all about parallel universes. But it's a very weird and unusual take on parallel universes, the idea being there are an infinite number of them, or probably, but there are no humans on any of the other ones. So they start colonizing the other Earths in these two directions that you can go away from the main Earth. And Mm. in that book, though, it's kind of flipped. Like here, it's like he's the one in 10,000 who can do it, whereas in the long Earth, most people can do it, but there's some people who can't or feel really ill when they do, like to the point where they just really don't want to do it and they're kind of stuck at home. There's a precursor story to it um, in the short story collection called The High Megas, which was like the one that came before the books came. So Yeah, yeah. it's a really interesting concept, but it's interesting they kind of flipped it around that this story is about some people being special and being able to go on this journey. Whereas the other one, because the story is about colonization and it's about sort of manifest destiny and it's about what humans would do if we suddenly had infinite space to do it in, it was more important that most people could do it for that story. Whereas in this one, it makes more sense that there aren't like a billion time travelers and there'll be one along any minute. Oh, sorry to be extremely on Twitter about this next comment, but um, what happens in the story is his machine breaks and he loses it for a while and he can't get back to where he's supposed to be, so he embraces this life. But when he finds his sort of ghost of a machine, there's the box underneath it that allows him to get by in any situation. There was a tweet that went around a while back that's like, if you travel back in time, what's like one thing you take with you? (laughs) And the main things were spices and gold, and that was what was already in this story. I mean, some people said their phone, which is ridiculous, because who are you going to call? But yeah. (laughs) Yeah, the the GPS won't work when there's no satellites, folks. You can't Google when there's no internet, but okay. But you could still uh, take photos while the battery lasted and astound people Mm -hmm. by saying, I've captured your soul. And you could play the music from your MP3 player. And True. they might also think you're a wizard. So that's handy. And Liz, just to pick up on what you mentioned about the fact that Mervyn, when he arrives in this strange world with what is it, Norman architecture and 15th century armor, um, mm. he's wandering around in the woods half conscious and dribbling. That to me again references that Pratchett knows his myth and knows his history because the the so-called historical Merlin, who I think is about a 6th century uh, poet from the north of England, was a bard driven mad after witnessing the horrors of war and went off and became a wild man living in the woods. Uh, And the derangement is what inspires the gift of prophecy and so forth. So again, there's a real sense of Pratchett knowing he's got all of this background to play with and he's just subtly referencing here and nodding there and without making a big complex thing of it. But again, anybody who is a fan of Arthurian fiction reading this story, there's so much, there's little details like that to, to delight in. Mm. And it's lovely that it's his circumstances that kind of recreate that myth without him even knowing because he, you know, Mervyn, by his own admission, doesn't know that much about the Arthurian myth. He sort of has a vague idea of it because he's studied actual history more than he has myths, which makes sense. You know, he's a time traveller. But also then he takes what he does know and he tries to recreate some of it on purpose, which I thought was great. Actually, just before we get on with the story, one thing that I don't know about the myth, I was trying to remember this while I was reading it. Who put the sword in the stone? Merlin. 
It was Merlin. Okay. Because yep. I can sort of imagine, like, it just seemed like a very mythic thing. Like, oh, we craft this sword. This is a sword. And now I'm going to stick it in the stone. There's also the other version of the story, which will be relevant in an upcoming episode of Pratchett, where the Lady of the Lake gives it to Arthur. And that's like a whole other thing, right? They don't go together. A couple of different swords. Excalibur is traditionally not the sword in the stone. Right. This is just the sword that makes you the king. But then you get the magic sword later. Women distributing magic swords as a way of governance. <laughs> Yes. I'm so glad we got a Python reference in there. That's good. Well, I have a theory to run past you, and I'm not saying I believe this theory. I just wanted to see what your thoughts are. But because he thinks that he hasn't traveled through time, he's kind of gone through sideways to a weird version of time, like maybe not quite real or, or the time of legend or a parallel universe or something. Hmm. Do you think it's possible that's not actually what happened, but he's just done so much time travel that his natural immunity to losing his marbles has gone away? Like, it's just one too many and this is him losing his marbles? <laughs> well, it's, it's possible. I mean, I think the thing that makes him feel that is that he's meeting these characters who he remembers from what are clearly fantasy stories of the Arthurian myth, because we know that I mean, certainly when there was still some thought that maybe Arthur could be based on a real person, the idea that had the most currency certainly and seemed most plausible was that we were talking about a Roman era king of Britain, like a Celtic king from the time of the Roman invasion of Britain. And so not at all like a knight in shining armor with a sword and a stone. And like if he had a sword, it would have been made of bronze, you know. So it's a very different idea of what the historical Arthur would have been to the story one. And I think that's what kind of makes him think that. But maybe it's just a coincidence, you know, he's meeting characters who have names from the story and maybe he is mixing it all up in his head. What I'm saying is that maybe none of it's actually happening. It's all happening in his head. Right. (laughs) That he's lost his marbles to such an extent that he's kind of hallucinating or... Which is possible, but I I think the character's own descriptions of Norman architecture and 15th century kind of armour side by side, for example, certainly tell him that he has gone sideways rather than back in time. Mm. And I think there's a, what's the description, Uh, a world you get to in a broken time machine, a world that's not exactly memory and not exactly story. Such a Pratchett thing to say as well. I love it. It definitely says to me that, yeah, um, the, the time machine has broken and he's somehow gone sideways into a parallel history, uh, a history that never happened as we remember it, but somehow echoes of it have been remembered in our own history. Although now I'm imagining your theory is true, Liz, and where he's actually ended up is at like a Renaissance fair or a live action <laughs> role play conference. <laughs> and he thinks it's real and everyone else just thinks he's a really good role player. <laughs> I think, like, I think he's gone into this. I think it's real. Like, what was happening in the story is real. But I do love when a short story leaves you the potential window to another explanation. And I think that might be a conscious decision here, which I also really enjoy. Hmm. All right. Well, look, let's get back to the plot. So, we've got the setup, which I love. He's gone sideways in time. Uh, He doesn't use the phrase, you know, into another leg of the trousers of time here. But that is the classic way for Pratchett to describe that sort of thing. But he feels like he's marooned here, that nobody's going to come and get him. There's that great line where he talks about when you're a time traveler, if no one immediately arrives to help you, you know there's no help coming. <laughs> and you're like, that makes sense. I like that. <laughs> but he, while he's doing his uh, dribbling Merlin in the woods impression, he's taken in by this woodsman, including his very sharp daughter, Nim- now is it Nimue? Is that how you say it? Nimue? Nimue, I think. Nimue. But yeah. Yeah, I should know this, but it's been so long. Hold on. There's actually a YouTube thing that says, Nimue. It sounds like an Enya song. Nimue, Nimue, Nimue. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh. Now, Niue is a character from the myth. She's a fae first? I'm, I'm struggling to remember her part in it. Who is she in the myth? Okay, we've got a couple of different kind of variants here. So, Niue is kind of a parallel to Vivian who is a parallel to Morgan Le Fay in some ways. Again, one of those gleeful moments reading the story. There's an ending for this story that doesn't happen in the story itself via the introduction of Nimue, because she is the person who, late in Arthur's reign, uh, or later in Arthur's reign, captures Merlin in a crystal cave, or possibly Uh entraps him in a a magic oak tree in a forest in Brittany. And so our time machine here is described as very hard to see unless the light catches it just right. A mechanical ghost, an idea of a machine. Think of it as a big crystal. So (laughs) reading this, I'm like, oh, so eventually Nimue helps Mervyn get back into his crystal and back to the world he came from or huh. his own time stream, possibly. And that is then echoed as, oh, she's trapped him inside a crystal cave. Uh, so again, it's Pratchett's mind at work, seizing on these references uh, from from fiction and weaving them together into a new tapestry. But you can still see the original kind of golden threads shining in them to give you a clue as to what he's taken and where those threads lead to. Uh, so again, kind of one of the things that I delight that I didn't quite cheer out loud when I, I spotted that reference, but it immediately set my brain fizzing, and I was like, "Oh, this is clever! This is really clever writing." I would not have known that if we had not got you on the show. So, thank you for that. Thank me, maybe, but also thank English romance writer Mary Stewart, whose book *The Crystal Cave*, *The Hollow Hills*, *The Last Enchantment* were foundational Arthurian texts for me when I was a teenager, uh, because she tried to do a historical Dark Ages retelling of the Arthurian myth from Merlin's point of view, uh, and that's hmm. where the idea of the Crystal Cave became embedded in my mind. I'm now thinking there's so many versions of the story where we do see that happen. Like I'm pretty sure. I don't know why my brain is going to the, the Sam Neill Merlin TV show. I'm pretty sure. Was that called Merlin? I think it was. And he, the one with the young Merlin? Uh, the one with the young Merlin, I don't know if he gets caught in the cave, but there's definitely, I think she's definitely a character in it. But yeah, there's so many versions. But that's part of the joy, right, of, of legends and myths is they become, you know, they are one of those kinds of stories that get constantly retold and remixed and adapted and updated. And Pratchett loves that sort of thing. He's all about writing stories that are about stories. I mean, it's it's kind of weird that there's not more Arthurian stuff in his other writing. I mean, he, he lived quite near some of the places that are at least in mythology associated with Arthur, if not, you know, in real life. But Nimue becomes this Mervyn's assistant, basically, because she's very bright, but she's a young woman in this sort of medieval society. It's not, it's, we're never quite clear what time it's set. It's kind of this sort of wibbly-wobbly, medieval-ish, and he can't rely on his usual tricks as well as he could. It it doesn't quite all line up, which is one of the other things that makes him think, oh, I maybe have gone sideways in time. And yes, they find his time machine, and he's got his stash of emergency gear, as well as the spices, pepper being just the main spice. You never think of that as being a spice that's worth money, but but then you think about it, well, there must have been a time when you couldn't just buy some pepper, right? So I've regularly wondered why the default spices are salt and pepper and why not like chili and coriander, but I'm sure there's like a a long, very good reason for that. Well, I think salt, well, because salt used to be, like it's called a salary because you used to get paid in salt, right? Because it was worth a lot of money and everybody wanted it. Well, because you could use it to preserve food before there was refrigeration, right? But so it's yum. But why? Yeah, and it's also delicious. Uh, 
it's it's great. But yeah, he's got gold, no. he's got pepper, he's got medicines and other stuff. And he's just sort of living fairly under the radar until Nimue's dad almost hacks his leg off with an axe because it's a woodsman, has an accident, and he probably an would have died. <laughs> that, oh no, that was not meant to be a pun. Uh, but he does, he has an accident and he heals him with his uh, medicines from the future. And then they start thinking of him as a wizard. Ooh. And he, you know, and he, he starts to try and improve life. But this is sort of the point in when he's recounting the story where he thinks, well, I'm stuck here. It's not real history. Normally, the rules are I have to not interfere and I can't change things. But I don't think that really applies where I am now. So, let's get some plumbing. Uh, and there's that great line where he's sort of musing that women are always the ones interested in advancing the infrastructure because it affects them the most. And you're like, yeah, that's a good insight for Pratchett to have. I don't, I mean, I don't think it would have been particularly revelatory even in 1995, but it's not something you see in writing from mainstream fantasy writers every day. So it was nice to see that kind of acknowledgement. Like you watch shows set in like the 50s or the 40s and the 30s and women are like, it's my laundry day. And I just sort of like wither on the inside at the idea of having a laundry day where I have to, where it's more than just chucking in a machine and, and doing something else. Like it's just horrifying. Uh, Heating up the copper and kind of scrubbing with the washer board and then running them through the mangler and, you know. Just too much. Yeah. Just ugh. so, and, and Ben, I agree that notion of uh, there's the line in the story about behind every great inventor in history, there was probably a woman kind of going, uh, "Running water, running water would be a great idea." Um, <laughs> yeah. And as you say, it's a, it's a. You can almost see Pratchett winking at the audience, going, "I want you to think about some of these ideas because it's a great way to put a serious idea forward in a fictional, fantastic, comedic framework." Hmm. Yeah, there's a great theory of human evolution, which is something you always got to be a bit wary of because people like to invent these theories to justify all kinds of things. But I think it's called the handbag idea. But the idea was that it wasn't the invention of fire or the wheel that was probably the thing that transformed human society in the really, really early days as much as the invention of like baskets and things to carry stuff in because suddenly you could gather things. Because you can't really gather enough food to make it worth that being your lifestyle all the time unless you make something and carry lots of it. And that would have been traditionally, at least, the women's contribution to the early human lifestyle. But this theory is kind of saying, yeah, and that was a much bigger deal than we ever give it credit for. And I, this sort of element of the story made me think of that. I, I still like that's a great point, but I also still can't stop getting the picture in my head of me at the supermarket having forgotten my bags just trying to like carry all my stuff in my arms or in my jumper so yeah baskets bags very important yeah and plumbing plumbing is nice but i think often in a story like this people think about plumbing as oh it's nice because now you've got hot water and you don't have to heat it up it's like well it's not just that like people and still this happens in lots of places in the world today people have to spend hours just getting water because Mm. they don't necessarily live right next to a source of clean drinking water or water for washing. They have to take a container and go to the place and fill it up and bring it back. And water's heavy, you know, if you've got any decent quantity of it. So this is a huge amount of effort and time, and plumbing eliminates that. You know, it's Mm. such a huge change in your lifestyle. 
Mervyn would not only bring running water to Camelot, but also interior heating, There's mm. a, which is referenced again in the story when he's commenting about how cold things are in these pseudo-medieval castles and huts that people are living in. So, yeah, we, we tend to think of Golden Age Camelot as a uh, note chivalry and romance, but, yeah, we've also got running water and interior heating. So... Mm. Uh, Thank you, Romans, who would have originally brought those things to Britain in the first place. <laughs> Were there any Romans in this timeline? We don't even know. Actually, and on that description of what the time is like, there's a great little passage. It's around the time in the story he was realising, okay, well, look, I've met this guy, Hector, and his son, Kay, and we'll come back to them. And this is where he's starting to think, I'm in Avalon. It's like an alternate version of Britain. What's going on? But there's no Arthur. This is sort of where he's having that revelation. But he describes the world and he says, you know, you want me to describe this world? You want to hear about the jousts, the penance, the castles? Right. It's got all of that. But everything else has this like thin film of mud over it. And this is taking me right back to my days of university because I wrote an essay about this exact thing. I'll have to look up the name of the researcher, but they called it Potatoes and Silk, which is the idea that all this medieval fantasy literature and fiction, but also depictions of what the real world was like, all revolve around these twin ideas that you have this courtly world of silks where everyone is really nicely dressed and they've got the nice pennants and the big pointy hats and they go to these amazing jousts and have a great beautiful time and it seems like luxury and then everyone else is just sort of slightly covered in shit and for me that's all summed up by the one line in monty python and the holy grail where the <laughs> king rides past and so it must be a king why is that he hasn't got shit all over him and you're like yes <laughs> that is exactly the world and the other interesting thing about that was those things are kind of constantly referenced in all of that fiction but of course in medieval england they didn't have silk or potatoes because there was no Silk Road, there was no major trade, at least with uh, China or any of East Asia. And they hadn't been to the New World yet, they hadn't been to America, so they didn't have potatoes either. So it was like these things that are emblematic of what that world was like weren't even there. But uh, yeah, I like how he kind of sums that up with just like two sentences. Oh, and it's followed by one of my other favourite lines in the whole story, which is the difference between the average peasant's hut and a pigsty is that a good farmer will sometimes change the straw in a pigsty. <laughs> and it's such a Pratchett way of grounding the story and saying, yeah, I know you want this to be a cool fantasy about King Arthur, but remember, King Arthur and his knights are like 14 people or something. That, there's not many of them. Everyone else lives this kind of terrible existence. <laughs> it's not a nice time to be alive. I really like the quote that's like when they're sort of reflecting on the previous really great king, they're talking, he says, when people talk about their great past, they're usually trying to excuse the mediocre present, which I thought was very accurate. It's very, yeah. it's very Brexit in that regard. It's kind of like, <laughs> let us reclaim the, the glories of the British Empire as a way of overlooking our current austerity, miserable existence. Yeah. And as you say, Liz, it's a really precise way to define the way that people look at history in their present context. Mm, absolutely. And it's kind of depressing. I mean, it's not depressing. Usually it's kind of helpful, I think, mostly. But there is an element of sadness that so many of the things that Pratchett talks about, where he's sort of making a point about the unfairness that exists in the world or stupid things or things that hold us back or the way that people oppress other people, and they're still relevant now, you know, 30 or in some cases 40 years after they were written, it's like, why do we still have this problem, you know? And I mean, we know the answer is because the people who have the power and the money, it's in their interest to keep those things the way they are. But it's still a little bit like, oh, someone wrote a line that perfectly encapsulates one of the things that we have as a major problem now, and they wrote it in 1995 <laughs> uh, or even earlier. Yeah, but it'll be relevant 20 years from now, 50 years from now, if we're here. But, you know. <laughs> yes. Uh, I do want to talk about some of the other Arthurian characters who show up because... 
Mervyn starts to get famous. People decide he's a wizard and they start calling him Merlin. There's that line in it where he's not sure if like Merlin was someone who existed or whether it's a story and that story's being, I think he, what he uses the phrase, like the story's been welded onto him. Yep. There was a Merlin I found out, a mad old guy who lived in Wales and died years ago, but there were legends about him and they're being welded onto me now. Yeah. Um, that's so which good. kind of also then gives us a snapshot of, again, historical reality. We're looking at sixth, seventh century poems from Wales and Scotland kind of mm. being not welded onto but being connected to mad prophets and so forth and you build up this composite character uh, and he references Robin Hood in the same way in the story which again I love that could be a, if there was a novel version maybe Robin Hood is also a time traveler who <laughs> kind of gets stuck uh, and starts adapting some of the the traits of a, of a historical character and, uh, and things get welded onto him maybe all of the great kind of historical legends are actually time travelers yeah there's a great thing in a jasper ford book about shakespeare not having written any of his it's, it's a throwaway thing not having written any of his actual plays like a time traveler came to him and just gave him all of shakespeare's plays and told him when to release them <laughs> ben that's oh, a no. bootstrap paradox it's, uh, yes yeah 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 or a predestination paradox the problem being where does that information come from you know, mm. like we know where Shakespeare got it from. We know where the person who gave it to Shakespeare got it from. But who created it in the first place? Nobody. It's just yeah. gone around in a circle. Reading the story last night and again this morning, more literary references kind of kept jumping out at me. And in this case, instead of an Arthurian reference, it made me remember a Michael Moorcock story, originally a novella from, I think, 1966, then rewritten as a novel in 1969, Behold the Man, in which a time traveller called Carl Glogauer travels in time from 1970 in a time machine which is spherical and full of liquid, like an amniotic fluid. Um, huh. He travels back in time to 28 AD to try and meet the historical Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, the, t the time machine breaks, its crystal sphere breaks, and the crystal structure made me think of this story. But he eventually discovers the real Jesus is a profoundly intellectually disabled young man, effectively a kind of drooling idiot. And he becomes Jesus at that point. He goes, well, somebody has to have done all of this. What can I remember of what Jesus did and who his disciples are? I better go and recruit them. Uh, and mm -hmm. again, that notion... So. Pratchett, I'm sure, has read that story. The thing I love about fiction is the referencing. It doesn't have to be overt, but you can trace the DNA of earlier science fiction and earlier fantasy expressed in other people's writing. And that, to me, that's an, an example of it. Yeah. And I think particularly when you go back to the kind of 60s and 70s, there's sort of a small enough pool of published writers that they are all kind of cross-pollinating in a way that now you do see that a bit, but it's also much more diverse is not quite the right word, but there's a lot more disparate? people writing. Disparate. Yeah, there's a lot more different stuff happening. We know that Pratchett had at least some minor dealings with Michael Moorcock. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the Discworld books that kind of indicates he was pretty familiar with them. But Michael Moorcock was the editor of New Worlds magazine at the time it published one of Pratchett's earliest short stories. So he must have had some kind of correspondence, even sort of secondhand with Pratchett. So they met in at least a very vague way. I've, I've been trying to find some information about whether or not they ever knew each other and, and corresponded. And I don't know that they did. But I just love that every time we find a connection like this, we also find evidence that, well, it's not just a coincidence, like they probably met, which is kind of amazing. There's a beautiful time travel story there somewhere, like there's potential for one. Yeah. 
Maybe it's the real world version of a bootstrap paradox. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I just love, like, even in that story you just described, the guy going back in time in the crystal sphere that's kind of filled with goo. I love that image. But also, it's a bit like Terminator. Like, when they send people back in Terminator, there's that sphere of energy around them that kind of melts everything. <laughs> I don't know. I just like that there's some kinds of imagery that crop up again and again with certain themes, you know, like time travel or space travel. There's just some things that just seem just to fit our weird mental idea of what they should look like. Uh, our mental idea, of course, as opposed to our physical idea, uh, <laughs> because we have those all the time. Well, a physical idea would be a book. Oh, fair. Hmm? That's fair. But let's talk, um, because now that he's famous, though, and now that these legends of Merlin are being welded onto him, he meets the local nobility. And we don't hear a lot about the sort of feudal structure of this world that he's landed in, but we do know that there are knights and there was a king, and he meets the local knight, kind of the closest thing they have to a local lord. I don't think they really talk about any other kind of nobility, but the, there's a local castle in which lives Sir Ector and his son Kay, who are, of course, characters from various versions of Arthurian legend, but most famously from the T.H. White version, I think. Probably for a lot of people, yeah. The uh, the Once and Future King, kind of book one, uh, The Sword and the Stone, which is what Disney turned into the animated film, The Sword and the Stone. Yeah, Sir Ector is the good-natured knight who the baby Arthur is given to by Merlin to raise in secrecy until such a time as he can be revealed and take out a sword from the stone and become the Once and Future King of England. Ben, earlier in the conversation, you mentioned the footnote that opened mm. Once and Future and said that you kind of wished you hadn't read it because it gives the ending away. And even if I hadn't read that footnote, there's a scene in Sir Ector's castle when there's a young woman on the scene and I was mm. kind of like going, aha, I know how this is going to end. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, so uh, again, fictionally, kind of Sir Ector is significant, Sir K uh, Arthur's stepbrother is significant. He becomes uh, Arthur's seneschal, uh, essentially his secretary uh, at, at Camelot. He's the, the one who kind of has the keys and looks after the budgets and stuff like that, effectively. So I'm not quite sure why you put Kay in such a significant position, because pretty much in most Arthurian fiction, Sir Kay is portrayed as a bit of a dickhead. But maybe yeah. Arthur was just like, oh, I better do something for my useless stepbrother. Yeah, I've got to give him something to do, keep him out of trouble. Let's not make him a knight. He'll he'll just make a hash of that. We'll just put him over here. Look after the keys. We can have the like money. a whole staff who'll actually do all the work. You're just in <laughs> charge of them. I enjoyed that they turned up. When they mentioned, yeah, the secret woman in the thing, I, wa I still wasn't sure at that point in the story because I thought Nimue was going to maybe end up with the sword because I was like, well, she's the sharp one. She's the 15-year-old. But then as the story went on, I was like, no, that's that doesn't make sense. That's not going to work out. It's kind of got to follow the myth a little more closely than that. Plus, if you really want to be in charge, you don't want to be the face of it. You want to be behind it. That's true. You don't want to have to go out and do quests and stuff. You want to have to cut all the ribbons and, like, smash the champagne onto boats and stuff, as you, in classic Arthurian legend. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Along with the silk, they also had the champagne. <laughs> but he's like, well, maybe this is where the Arthurian legend might come true. But it's not on track right now. There's nobody around. And I've somehow become Merlin. And he has this idea. He's like, right, we can make it happen. And I love that he doesn't believe that there is a chosen one. He's just like, I just need to find someone. And I can advise them. I know all this stuff. I can help them turn this around. Because I know how to make everyone's lives better using my knowledge of future technology and, and how to make things fair and treat people ethically. And I can, I can advise the king. 
and it'll be great. I just need to find someone who fits the mold, who's not that smart, but good natured and we'll sort it out. So he decides he's going to embrace it. There's that great scene where he's explaining this to Nimue and he has the idea and he does the spooky Merlin prophecy voice for the first time. (laughs) It's so good. Now, speaking of finding people who fit the mold, I would not necessarily quite trust Mervyn with all of this because he's also trying to accidentally invent penicillin by putting bread and water (laughs) in bowls and hoping the right mold grows on them. So if he can't get penicillin right, I'm not quite sure he's going to find the right boy to be Arthur. As it turns out, he doesn't. Uh, And there's a lovely sly suggestion. Nimue has manipulated things behind Mm. the scenes in the classic way that Nimue, a.k.a. Vivian, a.k.a. Morgan Le Fay's work behind the scenes in counterpoint to Merlin or sometimes with him so that when kind of our Arthur kind of substitute does eventually pull the sword from the stone there's a description of I glance at Nimue she's smiling an innocent little smile to herself Uh, (laughs) and again that one line just says so much about the character her motivations and it's an inference but it's certainly to me a very very clear one that Nimue has gone ah that's your plan is it let me see how I can fine-tune that slightly yeah that was great I love that (laughs) (laughs) And she's just so arch, you know, you can just imagine I got and I don't know if this is just because I've read so many Pratchett books now in a row over the last few years, but I I just had a very clear picture of her face, you know, when she's like looking at him and knowing full well what she's done. And I was just like, yes. It's a very clever characterization, especially since we're seeing all of this through Mervyn's lens, that what we think is happening still comes through despite him not seeing her that way, which is A+. Yeah. And I kind of liked, too, that the story is all about Mervyn and Nimue, really, and that the Arthur equivalent, Ursula, <laughs> um, great that he sort of unpacks the where that name comes from and why it's a great equivalent. Can't bear it. But I, I love that she really only kind of shows up, she's mentioned, and then she shows up at the end and is the one who pulls the sword out of the stone when he goes, right, this is the right sort of lad, and he takes his foot off the switch so that the electromagnet disengages and she pulls the sword out of the stone, puts her head back and everyone's like, it's a girl. (laughs) (laughs) A great moment. And then he's like, yeah, embrace it. This is what we're going to do now. And that's where the story ends. And you're like, well, we just met you, but this is a setup story. This is where it all begins. I was like, how dare you end it there? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But also I can kind of understand why. It's made me sad for the novel we could have had. Yeah, it would have been great. There's so much in this short story that you can really see where and how it would grow. Would the end of this short story be the end of part one, for example, with mm. kind of uh, two or three more kind of uh, parts to come in the in the book itself? Would it have spun off a trilogy? Who knows? But yeah, it's a classic short story in the same way that a great poem works, for example, or a great haiku. You take so many big ideas and condense them down into the minimum number of words possible, and every word is kind of beautifully placed and the whole the story as a whole is just kind of brimful of and bursting with ideas but contained in such a compact and artful way it's a a really good example of what you can do with a short story Mm. the ideas that bristle and jump off every page that lead your mind into different directions you can see so much potential but it still works as a story in and of itself rather than being a shadow of of a novel to come it's a a really nice self-contained kind of piece of work in its own right. Mm. Yeah. 
I've got to say, out of all the short stories of his that I've read so far, this is the one I would most like to see like be picked up for a TV show. You know, like I could see this working so well. I mean, obviously, you'd need the right team and want people to do a good job of it. And that's never a guarantee in television where budgets are small and time is short and producers are always worried about the audience. But I think, you know, if you had the right team on this, you could make such a great show. And it would be, su- it'd be such a nice fresh take on the whole Arthurian thing as well. Because, uh, mm. I mean, we've seen, I mean, there was that recent Netflix show that when I heard about it, I forgot what it's called. Do you know the one, Richard, with the, there is, it's kind of is like there's a woman at the centre of the story, who's got the sword. Um, oh, yes, I, I watched one episode and it was pretty dreadful and I think it got yeah. next after the first season. And that was a shame, right? It was like a similar idea, but it just wasn't very good. And so you're like, oh, all right. but whereas I feel like but it just needed something a bit more, you know? like Johnny it, Lee Miller has Merlin. Oh, yeah. He needs a new project. Elementary's finished. I'd watch the hell out of that. He'd make a great Mervyn. Incredible. The show you're thinking of, Ben, was called Cursed. That's the one. Yes. I really wanted this to be good, and it really doesn't feel like it is. Well, it, it's for me one of the things that, as somebody who has loved Arthurian legends and stories for so long, the fact that there are so few good films made out of this rich, evocative source material. I mean, you don't even have to go as far back as Mallory, but there is so much great Arthurian writing. Uh, and then we end up with terrible, terrible, terrible films like King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. Is that the Guy Ritchie one? That's the Guy Ritchie one, yes. Oh, no. um, which was apparently envisaged at the start of a franchise that we would get a series of films spinning off this and thank the gods we didn't. But even the film, it must be about 10, 12 years old now, King Arthur, which tried to do the last of the Romans allying with the Celts against the invading Saxons kind of story. Mm. It's a pretty bad film as well. Liz, I'm not sure if you've seen that one. No, I've seen First Night and I loved it as a kid and I was like, oh, I can't wait to rewatch this. And I did. And I was like, oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) But the gauntlet scene is great. That's the Richard Gere one? Yeah, the gauntlet scene is is worth it. But all the rest of it, I'm like, oof. oof." I remember seeing it in the cinema and going, wow, this is so good. Sean Connery, yeah. And then, uh, yeah, later on, I was like, no. (laughs) It's it's cool in a lot of ways. Like, it had a good cast and I think tonally it's good. It just hasn't held up. Mm. I think it's bad in a... It's not bad. I have complex feelings towards it. Well, I mean, it's the Arthurian myths. Uh, there's a lot of elements of them which are like, wow, you would not write a story like this today, would you? <laughs> like, there's some weird and gross stuff in these stories, like there are with a lot of older stories, you know. They, we, we really have a different understanding, not just of narrative, but of, like, ethics, you know. I guess I also just don't love, like, King Arthur hovering around the edges as this massive douche. Like, it's just not what I want to see now. Yeah, it's it's one of the challenges of adapting Arthurian stories is that Arthur himself, uh, pretty soon into the narrative, becomes inconsequential. The the focus of the narrative shifts to the knights at King Arthur's court, Lancelot and Bedivere and Gawain and Agravain and Gareth and even Mordred and and all those others. And Arthur becomes this remote, distant figure sitting in the background, slowly getting older and going, "Hmm, can I introduce Parliament now? What's next?" Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's a ch- they're challenging stories to adapt in some ways. But you'd think, given that Le Mort d'Arthur is literally the death of Arthur and his doom is foreshadowed right from the beginning, you've got a great story arc there. There's so much kind of rich narrative potential, which 
as we've seen in cinema, is very, very rarely realised. I think it's fair to say that there's only a handful of great Arthurian films, Excalibur from 1981 being one. I'd argue that The Kid Who Would Be King, the Joe Mm. Cornish film from 2019, is a good recent addition. And I've yet to see The Green Knight, but I'm hearing rave reviews about that. Yeah. Do you want Peter Jackson to do it? Yeah, but you want Lord of the Rings era Peter Jackson to do it. You don't want Peter Jackson now to do it, right? Well, Frighteners era Peter Jackson. Frighteners era Peter Jackson. Yeah, that would <laughs> yes, be great. Yep. As opposed to the lovely Bones slash the Hobbit slash Mortal Engines. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree. We want classic good Peter Jackson. That's an ideal choice, I feel. I think if I made Lord of the Rings, I would have just never again made a fiction thing and just done documentaries or whatever forever. Because you can't top that. I mean, you that, can't. that, that does seem to be where he's gone now, right? Like, his next film is a documentary. He did, he's done some good documentaries. Like he did that, didn't he do the West of Memphis one? Was that him? I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, getting too tangential. This is, yeah, this is, this is straying into areas I know absolutely nothing about, which is fine. Uh, but that does bring us to the end of the story. Although, before we get on to our favourite bits, I just want to see if we can thoroughly explore the weird themes in this story. Because it's quite unlike most of the other stuff that Pratchett has written. In everything from the form in which it's written with this sort of first-person recollection to the mixture of more traditional sci-fi with fantasy and then this kind of weird incorporation of a myth that he doesn't really directly address in anything else so but was there anything you saw in it that we haven't talked about no i only ever really lightly dabbled in sort of king arthur myths like i read a little bit of it at school but i never got in as deep as both of you did so i have i'd say like the person on the street average knowledge of the king arthur legends so a lot of the little things or like the detail got past me the things that stood out to me most, because I love time travel stories, is the one that you pointed out earlier, Ben, about him going back to the Charlemagne and trying to avoid seeing himself, which is the thing that comes up a lot in lots of time travel things, like don't ever come across yourself. But I, I got real Back to the Future energy from that one. <laughs> yeah. So and I'm 100% sure that is not a reference to Back to the Future, but that is just what it made me think of, because that's my go-to don't meet yourself in the past story. So... I do just want to talk about some of the other things that it draws from. I think the big one that is name-checked in the story is the classic Mark Twain novel from 1889, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Mervyn at one point does refer to himself as a Connecticut Yankee. But this story actually reminded me much more of a modern retelling of that story from 1979. So this is a film that's as old as me, but I watched it a lot when I was a kid. Like, you know, this was one of that sort of 70s era of Disney sci-fi slash fantasy films that they made. They made a lot of these in the 60s and 70s. Things like The Cat from Outer Space, Escape from Witch Mountain, or all that kind of stuff, which I loved. But this one, which I knew as The Spaceman in King Arthur's Court, which is one of the names it was released under in the UK, in the original American version, and it's still called this in the US, was called Unidentified Flying Oddball. I just want to describe the plot to you because it does have some parallels with this story. So, It's about a guy who works for the space program. I think he actually was not the intended astronaut. He was the guy who worked on the robot they were going to send into space. And so the robot looks exactly like him because he's built it in his own likeness for whatever reason, for plot reasons, I guess. And uh, he accidentally ends up on the space shuttle and goes into space with the robot. And they go into orbit, but they go into a weird time warp and they come out of the time warp and crash land in King Arthur's court where Merlin, from memory, is actually a bad guy in the film, like a dark wizard, and he's working with Mordred to sort of undermine the court. But the spaceman uses all his modern knowledge and his robot friend 
to write things. And it's just a ridiculous movie. It's got so many things going on, like a robot double, electromagnets come into play in a big way, just like in this story. So, I, I really had that in mind. And I'm like, I don't know if Pratchett ever saw that. He probably would have. Like, it would have been the right sort of film he probably would have watched with Rihanna at some point. I don't know. But strong vibes of that from this story for me. I've not actually read a Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. I think I've seen the original adaptation of it, which must have been in the 40s or the 50s, I think. Mm. Uh, and I certainly, unidentified flying oddball, I have to say, Ben, is quite new to me. So, uh, yeah. Oh, look, worth a watch. It's on Disney+. Plus. Sounds amazing. Yeah. It's very <laughs> stupid. Yeah. It, it, it sounds great. It makes you think again, A, of just how endlessly adaptive the Arthurian legends are, that you can literally shape them in any way you want to. Yeah, you can do, a, I don't know, a feminist retelling, a pagan retelling, for example, as Marion Zimmer Bradley did with Mists of Avalon. You can do comedy, you can do time travel. King Arthur crops up in DC comic books quite a bit, for example, where mm. uh, the character Merlin is the one responsible for binding the demon Etrigan into the, the body of Jason Blood. So... Yeah. There's so much endless scope and possibility, including humour, as Monty Python have demonstrated mm -hmm. so beautifully. And the fascinating thing about Python is, as you mentioned earlier, the, the silken potatoes. They focus very much on the potatoes, people grubbing in the dirt, the layers of muck and shit that encrust everything in that film. Um, mm. And that level of realism then gets carried through into Jabberwocky, for example, as well. Yeah. And it's something about the realistic nature of that that makes the comedy even greater in comparison in some ways. Yeah, which is something we see in Pratchett's stories all the time. You know, in the Discworld, even in this short story, he has that sort of level of realism that I think enhances the comedy rather than detracts from it. Which makes me think, you know, I said earlier this story is unlike his writing in a lot of ways, but it does have a lot of his hallmarks. In fact, one that really stands out, aside from the realism uh, and some of the other, you know, the style of humour and all that stuff that we've talked about, is that we know Pratchett loved to do research. He loved going and finding out as much as possible for anything that he was writing. And I think that really shows here. Like, I can imagine him having had many, many enjoyable hours, like probably many more hours on the research than the writing, figuring out what could you make that would be useful using the materials available to you in a medieval England setting that use modern engineering ideas. And like, oh, how would you generate electricity? Could you build an electromagnet? What Could you make concrete? What could you do? And just, yeah, endless fun researching that. And not to be, again, Back to the Future, but when he was doing all the electromagnet stuff, it did make me think of the one in Back to the Future 3 where Doc has made this really elaborate machine. You don't know what it's for, and it's to make one cube of ice for his drink. <laughs> Back to the Future Part 3, yes. <laughs> oh, I love that. That was so good. Yeah. Uh, but another thing that stood out to me from the very beginning of the story is that he's been meaning to write this for 10 years, and that actually gave me a lot of um, encouragement because you have ideas kicking around. And you're like, oh, well, one day I'll write that. And he did. Like, he's, like, it's just kind of interesting to think that he'd been mentally fiddling with this on and off in the background for a decade until the opportunity presented it to him to sit down and actually do it. And that's, that's just nice, is what I want to say. Yeah, because we all have... I've got a whole box full of notebooks, stuff that I've written that are either... I like, like, I mean, I'm sure you have had at some point a similar collection, Richard. Just 50% of them were just stuff I wrote for role-playing games that I was playing or, or running character backstories and histories of worlds and stuff that might come up. And then there's all the notebooks from projects that I've worked on that are full of ideas that didn't end up getting used. And 
Then there's ones that are just like, oh, I've got an idea. I'm going to write this down and then I never do anything with it. And it's so rare. And I say this actually when I'm teaching writing. I always say this to students. I'm like, write those ideas down, get them out of your brain. But don't be surprised if you never actually do anything with them. What you're doing there is you're making room in your brain for the ideas that are going to fire you up and you're actually going to write. And yeah, I almost never go back to those old ideas and use them. And, you know, if it's one you're going to write, I feel like it's always there at the back of your head. It just keeps sort of poking Mm. you in the brain. And I feel like that's what this idea was for Pratchett. You know, it never really went away entirely. It's kind of a literary pearl. It's that little annoying bit of grit stuck in your brain that you can't Mm. quite flush out. And over time, it is kind of layer upon layer upon layer of other ideas have formed around it. And then eventually it is a pearl. It's this kind of lustrous, opalescent little gem of of a piece of fiction that it would not surprise me if it's the kind of thing that he dashed off in a day or two. Uh, Mm. When the time Mm. was ready, he just went, oh, now is the time to write that idea I've always been thinking about. It's It feels so self-contained. It doesn't feel like something that was laboured over and polished because it mm. had been polished for years already in the preparation. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, we know quite a bit about his process for writing novels. Like, he would do his first draft. He describes it in a way that embodies the term I've used, which is the vomit draft, where you just get all your ideas and you go Bleh, on the page and then you can go back and edit it. And he would do that. He'd write this first draft that no one else was ever allowed to see. And it wasn't until he then went back and sort of started rewriting it and editing it that other people were allowed to come in and, and look at the process. But I don't know if he did that with short stories. I feel like you might be right that some of them he'd just sort of go, oh, I've been thinking about this for 10 years. Here it is. <laughs> Well, I know everyone's got a different process, but I think with short stories, you can hold a lot more of it in your mind at any given time, more than you probably could for a novel. So, like when I write one, I've generally written the important parts already before I even sit down to my keyboard, so I then just do dash it out and then polish it up a little bit around the edges so that I don't have a vomit draft for short stories because it's happening in your mind all the time. Mm. All right, now, look, even though it is a short story, as I said before, there's so many great bits. Are there any quotes or bits you want to pull out and just quickly read out or discuss briefly before we move on to listener questions? Because it is full of great stuff. So I love when, like, he's describing how he sort of arrived in this world and how he doesn't quite remember it and some of his earliest memories of getting there. So he says, There was this girl trying to feed me soup. Don't even try and imagine medieval soup. It's made of all the stuff they wouldn't eat if it was on a plate. And believe me, they'd eat stuff you hate to put in a hamburger. And it's just so visceral. (laughs) Like, I probably spend more time than is normal imagining medieval food, I think. Because, again, to mention a tweet, ages ago someone was talking about how the flavors of a Dorito would have been more than, like, an average person would have had in the Middle Ages, which I have not fact-checked. It just sort of past the pub test it sounded about right (laughs) so yeah it just sounds like a whole lot of beaks and tubes doesn't it yeah and i mean and and again you know it's the silk and potatoes thing we always see the courtly dinners where they're eating like a roast pig's head and an apple and all these vegetables and you're like they wouldn't have this many different kinds of vegetable (laughs) like half of these come from bits of the world they don't even know exist at this point in history my school did have a medieval feast because we studied the Middle Ages in year four and my teacher was very into it and she was driving force behind this and it would culminate in the annual medieval feast where you sort of dress up in a costume, which included a dragon, like, because it was that kind of medieval feast. Mm-hmm. And she said that over the years she tried to incorporate different kinds of authentic food, like rose petal soup at one point. And she said one year she tried to do the thing where you had the plates made of bread because that was the thing apparently that people did. Mm-hmm. 
And parents were also invited to this. It was a big school thing for the year fours. And she said that she never did it again because all the dads thought it was like bread left out to have before the meal. So they ate their plates and had nothing to put their food on. So, yeah. <laughs> well, that's great. I used to be a member of the Society for Creative Anachronisms, the oh. SCA. So I've, oh, I've heard of that. I've been to a couple of medieval feasts where they research medieval dishes and what is available. And some chefs are more scrupulous than others, mm. but there's still a fair bit of variety that you can have. But thankfully, the idea of concealing the flavor of rotten meat uh, <laughs> by spicing it up is not something that we have to worry about anymore. Thank Ooh. goodness. You meaning to spice up your life? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or spice up your death if you're eating rotten meat. Uh, in terms of favorite bits, one of the lines that I loved, and I think it was you who mentioned this earlier, the jousts, the penance, the castles with a thin film of mud over it. But he goes on to say, now, get me right, no one's doing any repressing as far as I can see. There's no slavery as such, except to tradition. But tradition wields a heavy lash. I mean, maybe democracy isn't perfect, but at least we don't let ourselves be outvoted by the dead. I love <laughs> that phrase. The idea of tradition and the dead shaping and voting on our present. That's a beautiful, beautiful piece of writing. Yeah. That was cool. There's a great pun, Liz. I, I can't believe you haven't mentioned it, where uh, Nimue mistakenly calls it democracy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did a sensible chuckle when I read that. He doesn't make anything of, but it's very funny. Um, oh, I do like the actual wording of when he's practicing his prophetic voice. Because he starts out just by going, ooh, and then when he hears him, he goes, what's going on in there? And then he says, ooh, hear me, hear me. Not bad, not bad. Hear me, oh ye men of Albion, hear me. It is I, Mervyn, that's with a V, who speaks to you. Let the message go out that a sign has been said to end the wars and choose the right wise king of Albion. Ooh, uh. <laughs> it's just... Oh, just delightful. Just imagine some time traveler having an endless amount of fun doing these, what we would consider stock weird voices, but which probably no one there has heard anyone do before. Oh. Uh, it's similarly that the, the description that he has of Merlin, it's just a little throwaway line, and it's, poor old Merlin had left a hole which I filled like water in a cup. Uh, the idea of being a time traveler who can travel back in time and take on a role, putting on a, a character like a costume. Again, that's just a, it, it's such a succinct, pithy piece of writing. But if people want to know more about the real historical Merlin, I can recommend in a slightly, it's a very dense, wordy way, Nikolai Tolstoy's The Quest for Merlin. And I believe, yes, Nikolai Tolstoy is related to that Tolstoy, but it's probably outdated now. It was published in 1985, but piecing together knowledge of Welsh poetry, Scottish history, to try and create an identity for the original Merlin or the, the original composites that made up Merlin, if you will. But given that, yes, uh, a similar book from the same time, Leslie Alcock's Arthur's Britain, is now kind of pretty much derided by historians because it says, oh, look, late 5th, early 6th century, Bit of a gap in the historical records. That's when the real King Arthur must have lived. Yeah, it's part of me still wants somebody to, I don't know, to prove that there really was a historical King Arthur. But mm. um, look, I'm not holding my breath. Although, who was it? The British King Ryothamus, who fought alongside the last Gallo Roman commanders against the Visigoths in an expedition to Gaul in the fifth century? Eh, seems like a good candidate to me. <laughs> He's got the gig. 
let's see. let's go with that. Yeah, it's it's weird, isn't it? Because you know you want these characters to exist, and some of them just very clearly did not in any kind of real way. Like Robin Hood, there was not. I mean, there's lots of stories that became the story of Robin Hood. Highly unlikely there was actually one person who was Robin Hood. And I, I, I'm sorry if I've destroyed anyone's dreams by saying that. Does anyone else still picture him as the fox from the cartoon? <laughs> Whenever anyone says Robin Hood. For the Disney animation. Yeah, that's what I picture when you say, because that's where I was first introduced to the concept. So, yeah. I used to love that film. I had the original cast recording, I think you'd probably call it. And there was even a book version that kind of there was a little ping when you had to turn the page. Oh, so yeah. Like that. So, yeah. But uh, if I see Robin Hood in my head, I probably see uh, Michael Prade from the Robin of Sherwood series from the 80s with a Clanad soundtrack, long, dark, flowing locks, kind of looking brooding and handsome uh, in some pseudo-historical with a bit of Celtic myth added in kind of background. So, mm. I mean, I, I fully admit I just see Cariola's face. Um, <laughs> just my favourite. It's so good. I haven't rewatched it, though. I hope it holds up, but I'm scared too. I think it mostly does, although I haven't watched it The mole moving around the guy's face is just, yeah, it's... Very. I have a mole? Uh, Anyway. It would probably help you to understand this part of the conversation if we told you that the film we're discussing is Mel Brooks' 1993 parody of Robin Hood, Robin Hood, Men in Tights. I like just how direct he is with the research that he's done. When Mervyn says, turns out it's a lot easier to build an electrical generator than a steam engine. I'm like, yeah, if you know how it works... That actually tracks for me. Again, that's the pub test. I haven't done any research, but yeah. And he ends up using a wave generator and making an electromagnet. Great. Brilliant. I do love the description of the time machine. I just think it's inventive. The fact that Pratchett says, oh, you've probably seen in the movies where you can tell exactly what time you arrived in because there's a little dial or something like that. But no, I have to go and ask people and they probably don't even know who the local king is. or And all of that, I was just like... that. That's what time travel would be like. I wouldn't turn up in 500 AD in Britain and go, what year is it, peasant? I wouldn't be able to talk to them, for starters. Uh, I wouldn't speak their language, and they'd probably look at me and kill me because I was some weird kind of invader from a foreign tribe. So, But yeah, so all of that, the time machine, that description of it being a mechanical ghost, an idea of an mm. engine, because it exists in two places at once. The, the mechanism is both in the machine but back at the time travel base. Really rich, descriptive, evocative ideas described so lightly with such a delicate, but absolutely solid touch. It's really good writing. I yeah. really love the idea of him meeting the time traveler from the future in a pub in like 1865, because it's just the idea of like, well, of course they'd meet up in random times if you're different time travelers, like you would, because you wouldn't have a communal time. So I kind of found that really charming. I have a question. Um, if he was supposed to be going to see the crowning of Charlemagne again, why was he wearing Levi's? <laughs> Well, I mean, I guess you want to be comfortable until... Well, I think the thing is that I think we think that would mark you out a lot more than probably it would. Mm. Like, because we now have this idea of fashion changing and clothes being different in different parts of the world. And th- but I think most people... I, 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 don't, I don't know. I mean, I think if you went back in time, people aren't really looking at your clothes going, hmm, hey, how did you get those stitches so small? Like, they're not really... <laughs> I reckon you would, though, like, because if you're making your own clothes, presumably, through that time, someone shows up in these sort of, like, denim things that you've never seen before, because denim wasn't a thing, you'd be like, what is that? Maybe. I think I I agree with you, Liz. A, a seamstress would be like, tell me exactly how you made that. Um, And then also, 
denim, I mean, we think about denim as being so ubiquitous now, but if you travelled back in time, say, to the 1930s, 1940s, people would have assumed you were, I don't know, you had a particular trade or you were mm. from a particular class, for example, because it wasn't until Kerouac and the Beats kind of popularised mm. them in some ways, my understanding is, that it became a more widespread fashion choice, effectively. So, yeah, I think mm. to a degree, Ben, I also agree with you. If I travelled back wearing a pair of jeans to... 500 AD, people might just go, well, that's a particularly well-made and robust set of trues that man is wearing. I will kill him and steal them. <laughs> yes. Yes, that was probably most likely what would happen to me if I was a time traveller. I think someone would kill me to steal my weird stuff that I was carrying. But the other thing that just makes me think of, though, is I remember when I was studying history in university, one of my lecturers often tried to really get us to question the Disney idea of history, which he described as, they're just like us, except they wear different kinds of hats. Because that's what all of the Disney films that are set in early areas of history, they are. They just they behave like modern people. They talk a little bit funny. They might have a different accent and they wear period costume. But their sort of personal attitudes, the way that they relate to each other, the things that they believe and think about are not significantly different from what we understand our own culture to be. Whereas, in truth, the cultural difference between us and people from, you know, 500 years ago, let alone, you know, 1200 years ago, would be huge. Even in 1800s. Yeah, even a few hundred years ago, you know, it's, it's massive. And I think that's something that doesn't necessarily come through in this story, but you kind of get away with it because they're in this sort of weird other world of Arthurian Britain. And he does refer to things like the language. I like how he talks about everyone speaking a sort of Middle English, which was okay as it turned out, because I can get by in that, having accidentally grounded in 1479 once. Uh, and I like he calls it grounding, not landing as well, because the machine doesn't actually go anywhere. It just sort of translates in time somehow. And the, the one other thing that I wanted to say was I like the very specific description that he's given by the boffins about what will happen if he ever messes with the timeline, which is the universe would suddenly catastrophically collapse into this tiny bubble 0. 0.005 angstroms across. But I say it's got to be worth a try anyway, because <laughs> he's going to no violate food. these laws. Um, yeah, it seems a bit, seems a bit dangerous. But no one would be able to like tell him off because everyone would be gone. Yeah. Look, I think we could just read the whole story because the mm. whole story is probably full of favourite bits. It's so much fun. But we did get some great questions and we should try and answer them. I think some of them we've kind of already talked about, but let's mm. let's have a look at them. Liz, what's first off the rank? All right, so we've got a few from Bell via Discord. So the first one is, what other classic tale would you like to see Pratchett reimagine? Oh, he'd probably do a good piss take of Robin Hood, wouldn't he? Mm. That leaps immediately to mind, probably because we were talking about it earlier. I've got one that I'll probably mess up because it's one I've been told orally. I've never actually read it. But there's this Chinese one about a world where there were too many suns. So it was way too hot. I think there was nine. And there's this famous archer who was recruited to shoot them down and leave only one, which he did. So he like got his bow and arrow and he got rid of all the suns and the earth returned to how it was supposed to be. And I might be mixing up different things together, but I think his reward was supposed to be something and the king denied it to him. So he did something else. Or like the suns are actually representative of the king's suns. There's a, there's a lot going on and there's a lot of different versions, but I think something about that, like the whole like weather element of it and archery, I think that would have been rife for a Pratchett retelling. I can think of two things, and one of them may already have been done. I don't know Pratchett's body of work well enough. But initially, I was thinking as a short story, I'd like to see him do Homer's Odyssey, 
Uh, And partially just because I like the idea of Odysseus making up all these excuses going, oh, look, I know I've been lost for years and sorry about that. He was actually just on the piss with a couple of mates. And so he's invented (laughs) all of these wild stories to explain why he's been at the pub for a bit too long. And over time, it just gets exaggerated. But also the idea of Monkey and Tripitaka's journey to the West strikes me as something that kind of a Pratchett take on as a novel or as a series of novels, perhaps, but maybe let's just keep it to one novel. That would have been a delight to read. Mm. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. That reminds me, there's a, there's a new or a newer translation into English of the original novel that I'm very keen to read because I love that story. I just read a recent review of a new translation and it sounded great. So yeah. I will add it to the list of new translations of things like Beowulf that I must get around to reading. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just on Odysseus, he touches on it a bit. He doesn't really do it. But in Eric, the early Rincewind book, where he kind of travels through the history of the Discworld a bit, he ends up back in the equivalent of the classical Greek era and meets one of his own ancestors who basically is Odysseus. But we don't we don't get his full story. He's always just trying to avoid wars and run away from things. <laughs> it's the main thing we get out of that from memory. But that's So he's sort of touched on it, but not quite. I was just thinking about mythology too, and he mashes up the Greek gods and the Norse gods a bit to create the pantheon for the Discworld, but he never really does a lot of direct parallels. But some of the wild stuff in those stories would have been fun to see a Pratchett take on those. I think that would be fun. I think it would have been really cool to see him do a Labors of Hercules thing, though there was a movie like five or six years ago, possibly with The Rock, where they mm. did a satirical version of, and it was surprisingly fun. Like I really enjoyed it, where like... It was made up, like, that Hercules hadn't actually done all the things, but then they had to actually go out and do something, and it was actually just a lot of fun. But Agatha Christie did her own version. Like, she's got a short story collection called The Labors of Hercules, where each of them has been translated to, like, a murder mystery, and it's it's very cool. And it's also an insight into the time where that was just assumed knowledge. It was just assumed that any reader picking up this book would know the 12 labors of Hercules and what they were, and so would enjoy a short story based off something very specific. I found mm. that really interesting. Back in the day when everybody was taught the classics, oh, what do they teach young people in school? <laughs> <laughs> that was me channeling C.S. Lewis. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. You know what? I wonder what Pratchett would have done with like a retelling of Narnia slash the sort of Jesus allegory that oh. appears there. Like, there's got to be, because I don't think he's, there's, I mean, the closest thing is Good Omens, where there there are sort of some bits of commentary there, but you just wonder, you know, what would the Pratchett equivalent of Life of Brian be like? <laughs> C.S. Lewis would have risen from the grave and, like, just gotten real angry if he tried to do that, though. Like, <laughs> But I do kind of, because, like, you know, there's that whole bit in, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where the end of it is basically, like, Ah, uh, yes, you have to submit to me because of the ancient magic from beyond the dawn of time. And Aslan's reply is basically like, yes, but because of the even more ancient magic from before, before the dawn of time, you have to not do that. And I'm like, it's like kids in a playground inventing new rules. <laughs> you know, I did not. I, I would love to see Pratchett take the piss out of that. That'd but be again, that tweet thing is like, oh, yeah, C.S. Lewis, I'll absolutely lose my shit if people don't realize this is about... Jesus, and then Tolkien's like, don't say it's about World War II. I don't want to say what it's about. So, <laughs> it's phrased a lot better than that, but yeah. 
That's very good. All right, so Bell's asked a few that we've covered already, so I'm going to skip a few of them. So how about um, Pratchett was far ahead of his time, reimagining classic with a feminine heroine in 995. Have you read any of the current trend of reimagined fairy tales with more feminist ideals, and what are your thoughts on this genre? It's a big question. It is. It's not quite a fairy tale for me, but I watched that film a little while ago that was a retelling of Hamlet that was called Ophelia. I think it wasn't didn't get very good ratings, people, or it just sort of flew under the radar. I think it was quite a flawed film, but I thought it was really interesting because it told the whole thing from her perspective. And like her, classically, like she loses her mind and dies. Whereas in this film, that's not what happens, but it's worked into her narrative so that the alternative story is plausible. And I thought it was just very well handled in terms of just looking at that story in a different way. I'm trying not to do spoilers, which is why I'm being so vague about how they handle it. That's fair enough. It has Daisy Ridley as Ophelia. Oh, okay. Well, now I've got to watch it. I love Daisy Ridley. That sounds great. Mm. The one that most comes to mind for me is Naomi Novik's Uprooted, which is not really a direct retelling of any particular story, but it has that very fairy tale fantasy feel and it's kind of about girls taken away to a tower no one really knows what happens to these girls but the local wizard takes a particular girl from each generation and they go into his tower and they either never come back or they come back a bit different and there's all these stories about it that's kind of a classic kind of fairy tale setup but the protagonist is the newest girl to be sent to the wizard's tower and it's great i really loved it it's kind of a romance it's kind of a fairy tale it's kind of a fantasy but I think, you know, anything that turns these things on their head and gives you a fresh perspective is good. You know, we, how many more stories do we need about the young guy who's got no particular talents but is magically the chosen one, you know, which happens in everything from Star Wars to the Lego movie? Like, <laughs> we don't need any more stories like that. It's time for some new ones. So, I'm all for it. And I, I love these I can't, although embarrassingly, I can't think of any other specific ones that I've watched recently. There's a series that I've heard about that I haven't read. Penguin Books in the UK a couple of years ago, I think, published a series of stories, A Fairy Tale Revolution. Jeanette Winterson did one, retelling Hansel and Gretel as Hansel and Greta, and Blackbeard becomes Blue Blood, and that's Mallory Blackman. So I've heard interesting things about them. And of course, I'm sure some culture warriors seized upon them saying, this is outrageous, what's wrong with kind of good old-fashioned fairy tales? Well, early fairy tales critiqued kind of patriarchy and all kinds of things anyway. So surely this is kind of a, some of it, some of these are are in a very long tradition of revisiting old stories, kind of re, kind of not reimagining them, but, but reframing them for a contemporary audience in the same way that kind of back in the, the, the days of oral poetry, I'm sure kind of a, a bard or a wandering minstrel was probably like, oh, I better reframe this story slightly because I think this king killed his father uh, and took over the throne so maybe i'll kind of like tweak the story a little bit in the retelling stories change for different audiences so yeah yeah i can't believe i didn't think this first sorry but i just realized my favorite one of all time is a tv show which is made marion and her merry men which reimagines the story of robin hood if marion was trying to get these people together because she was sick of the way that all of the peasants were being treated but robin who is a cowardly tailor from Kensington, is accidentally interpreted as the leader. It's very silly because they all do have very sort of childish personalities because it's meant to appeal to kids. But it is nonetheless a great fun time by Tony Robinson of Blackadder and Time Team. Uh, Pratchett Audiobooks fame and Time Team fame, of course, as long-time listeners of this podcast will know. 
The next question comes from Sven via Discord. Since the short stories always have the reputation of leaving questions unanswered, which question do you feel should have been answered if this story would have been a whole book? That's a good one. How long does it take Queen Ursula to discover America? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I feel like the big question is how does history differ? You know, where does it go? Like, what leg of the trouser of time do we go down and how different? Does it become under these conditions? You would re-spin some of the stories, but I think you wouldn't just use all of the stories of the knights. Like, I think you would have to make Ursula a much more central figure rather than the sort of sidelined one you were talking about before, Richard. Well, does Mervyn ever get home, I guess? Mm. And does he ever figure out if this is another universe or, or at home? I kind of want to... I, I mean, it kind of doesn't matter, and I don't mind not knowing, but I also, if you were going to make it longer, I think I would kind of like to see that explored a little bit. In, in my own personal headcanon, as I mentioned earlier, Nimoy entombs Merlin in a crystal cave. I think kind of in uh, a version, a future version of the story or an expanded version of the story, yeah, um, Nimoy helps Melvin get his time machine working again and packs him off in it. And then maybe she becomes a time traveler herself. So that's why we have so many different legends of the ladies of the lake rather than just one, because she keeps cropping up in different alternative worlds. Yes, I love it. And I think I'd like an answer to the question from before, which is, is Robin Hood also a time traveler? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right, so the next question comes from Craig via Discord. Why this short story? I'm not objecting everything he did is worthy of discussion, just curious. I mean, that's an interesting question. Like, which one of us chose it in the end? Because I've got my reason for choosing, but yeah. Well, I think it was you, because this is a little peek behind the curtain, but when we decide to do a short story at the moment, because we're, we're saving the Discworld ones, because we're hoping to do the Discworld short stories, most of them anyway, as live shows, now that that is possibly on the cards. And we will hopefully, next year in April, that's 2022, at the Australian Discworld Convention, be discussing one of them there. Uh, we won't say which one. We'll leave that as a surprise for you. But that means that the rest of them we're doing was mostly non-Discworld stuff. And so, we try to pick something, I guess, that suits the sort of themes that we're looking at at the time we're reading. I mean, this one feels like it fits very nicely in between Thief of Time and Nightwatch because it's about time travel. But also we do think who've we not had on as a guest and Mm. who'd we want to ask and what do we think they'd be interested in? That's definitely an influence. But you did pick this one. Well, and I don't know if I want to confess this to even you, Ben. I haven't read all these short stories. I like leaving them fresh for when we're going to do them. So Mm. when we decided we're going to do a short story, what I did was I went to the list of titles. I chose non-Discworld and I went, what jumps out at me? And I chose one. It wasn't this one. I had a quick flick through to see what the key themes were. I was like, not this. This is the other title that appealed to me. I had a flick through. I'm like, ooh, Arthurian stuff. That sounds great to me. I really want to read this. And then I was like, Ben, let's do this one. That was my whole process. Good title. Quick flick through. Sounds good. Let's do it. Yeah. Richard, do you ever find it difficult to choose what you're going to cover on on Smart Arts or what you're going to, I mean, because you're making big choices about this. You can't possibly write about everything or talk about everything. Is this a difficult part of your job as well? Uh, sometimes, yeah, which is why some episodes of my three-hour radio program include anything up to nine or ten interviews in one week, uh, <laughs> just because there's always so much great stuff to talk about. As I've got older uh, and have less energy, I try to restrict that to five or six interviews a week, which is still a lot of preparation and a lot to cover. But it's great fun. I guess my rationale tends to be I will choose things I'm interested in and hope that they resonate with the audience. 
And the thing that seems to resonate the most is going behind the scenes. So, Ben, a moment ago, you said like a peek behind the curtain. Part of me wanted to to jump in and say, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I think people love that because people are really fascinated by the end result, in this case, the published short story. But they would have loved the opportunity to be able to sit down with Terry or to hear Terry interviewed about the creative choices that he made, the references that are woven into the story, and the how and why that something was created, not just the end result. So that's for me, is one of the, the guiding principles. If there's an interesting story about the making of something, about the creation of something, then that's just as interesting to discuss as the finished, published, polished, staged, filmed, whatever it might be, outcome. Mm. Yeah, to, to answer the question as simply as possible, I guess, like why this short story, when I discovered that he'd written a King Arthur story or something in that world, I just found that really exciting and it just was something I wanted to cover. And as Ben mentioned, it's something that we knew that we could get a really interesting guest on, which we have. So, yeah. It's worked out. And if you want to see more behind the curtains of Pratchett, one thing we haven't really covered yet, as well as A Blink of the Screen, the collection of his short fiction, there's also A Slip of the Keyboard, a collection of his non-fiction writing, all of which is shorter. Heaps of really interesting essays, and kind of like when you read a lot of the stuff that Douglas Adams wrote that was non-fiction, like quite a lot of it is about the craft of writing, and there's lots of speeches that he's given or little things that he's written for different audiences about his writing process. So that's a really good one if you want to go behind the scenes, as Richard was talking about on Pratchett. And we should probably cover some of those. We'll have to have a look at some of the essays in a slip of the keyboard at some point. There's a follow-up question there. All right, so the second question is, did you read it from once more with footnotes in the Sarah Terry Pratchett introduction? What would you wish for if you really had those old discs again? Or was it from a blink of the screen where the, quote, wrong format edition really crushed all hopes? Or was that just me? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think we've revealed, we've read it from the more recent edition where he's added the footnote that says basically there's no chance of this book being written because mm. the original files could not be recovered. I mean, I, th I think we kind of talked about, you know, what we wish would have happened. I kind of wish it would have been like a standalone book. Like, I wouldn't have liked to have seen him do it. Not that I think there's much chance of this, like he didn't have time for it, but I don't think it needed to be multiple books. I think it would have been really good as like maybe a slightly bigger novel. I think that would have been cool. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I think it would have worked beautifully as a self-contained novel, expand on some of the ideas, take the story further, maybe gives an ending where Melvin does get back home again, or at least tries to, and we end kind of in a dot, 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 never knowing whether he got home at all. In terms of what else would have been on those floppy disks, I would actually have had hope. I know that there's plenty of really expert data recovery people out there. So if I were to <laughs> announce on Twitter or Facebook, help, I've got some old like actual floppy disks or the then the the smaller more compact disks that superseded them or in my instance audio files for example on mini disks that we used to use at the triple r studios i'm sure there's somebody out there who's got the working technology that could help us or could have helped terry recover those files um, mm. so i kind of live in hope in that regard but yeah it's one of the scary things about technology how quickly everything becomes outdated i've got shoe boxes full of old floppy discs, hard discs and mini discs and God knows if I'll ever be able to recover what's on them, but you live in hope. I reckon if you do that, that Twitter call out, you'd you get it. I keep saying Twitter this podcast. It's like the most I've ever said in my life, which is ridiculous. But um, it's all right. I do I do think that if he had done the standalone book, it would have been quite a nice thing alongside Dodger. Like it's almost like the start of a series of him taking another look at literary characters. That'd be kind of cool to have that as a side thing. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. All right. So, should we get to the final question? Yes. And this came a bit out of left field, didn't it, Liz? 
Yeah, but there is a very good Facebook group about it. But, um, yeah, so this one's come from Ridden Betancourt via Facebook. What is the best thing you've ever found in a charity shop? <laughs> I've been I'm racking not- my brain over this, and it's hard to... Yeah, I mean, look, you know, we don't usually do completely unrelated questions, but I think this one was kind of irresistible. Uh, mm. Someone did respond to Rin on Facebook, one of our listeners, to say Terry Pratchett books because you do find a lot of them in charity shops. I don't. He's sold so many. You don't. Yeah, I don't really see them. Like that was the whole thing. I even wrote about it in an article one time, which was that I struggle to find them secondhand because it feels like people hold on to them. You do find, like, the Discworld ones you find. You don't find many of the other ones because if people have bought those, they tend to hang on to those. But I think some people, you know, they're like, oh, I can always buy another copy of that. Or, you know, they're not going to go out of print anytime soon. Uh, certainly secondhand bookshops usually have a pretty good Pratchett selection. But they don't have the ones that you don't, you're you looking for, right? They always, <laughs> always have all the ones that you've already got. What is the best thing I've found in a depends on what you shop? mean by best. Like, I mean... There's, like, the things you buy that you use so much that, like, you, like things in my kitchen that, like, plates and things that I mm-hmm. use every day that I found there and I love. Or there's um the weird things, like a giant plush-looking 90s Beatrix Potter-esque mouse that's just filled with bricks. And I'm like, what what was this for? Like, to hold open a door, but also, like, it wouldn't be great in the elements because it would just absorb dirt and water. So I'm like, why is this cute mouse filled with bricks? Who made this and why? Crumbled up bricks? Is that what we're talking about? No, no, like proper bricks. Like you build a a house out of. No, no, several bricks. What? It was really heavy and large, and you could feel the bricks through the plush mouse. I I feel like you're going to need need to send us a photo to put in the episode. That is bizarre but fascinating. Yeah. And my friend who found it was like following me around. Like I'd go somewhere else and he'd follow (laughs) me around the shop with it and turn around. (laughs) Best thing I ever found in a charity shop. I'm going to cheat slightly and divide that into a charity shop and secondhand bookshop. Um, So secondhand bookshop, best things I ever found back in the 80s when I still lived in country Victoria, so 84, 85, I would catch trains up to Melbourne to go to secondhand bookshops. And I found old, obscure authors in the Lovecraft circle, like Chambers, who wrote The King in Yellow, and Clark Ashton Smith and stuff like that. And there would be gems that I would treasure, and, and some of which I still own. So weird, old, obscure horror fiction would be one. But in a charity shop, like a secondhand clothing shop on Smith Street, that also obviously sells old glassware and bits of bric-a-brac and books and whatever, I found a red velvet jacket with black velvet trim on the cuffs and collar lined with silk, uh, and I still own it. It barely fits me anymore, but it's the most beautiful piece of secondhand clothing I've ever found. I've lent it to a couple of actors from time to time, so it's appeared on stage in Melbourne as well, um, just because hmm. it, it looks like a, a kind of debonair, uh, dilettante smoking jacket kind of thing. Sounds but amazing. All out of kind of uh, red and black velvet and black silk. So, yeah, that's my answer. Thanks, Rin. Mm, that's amazing. I had a couple of answers, but you just reminded me of one that wasn't on my list, which is in a secondhand clothing shop. And I can't remember where it was or which one it was, but I found a brown pinstriped suit. Very David Tennant is the tense doctor. It got a beautiful red lining with, I think, sort of a paisley pattern on the inside. And the weirdest part about it was that the jacket fit me like a glove, did not need any adjustment whatsoever. But the trousers were so small, it was ridiculous. I had to get, like, I couldn't just get them let out. I had to get, like, a dart put in them in in order just to put them on. And the legs are too scared. And I was trying to imagine the person, because it was clearly tailored, and I was trying to imagine the person who'd originally 
warn them who had like an upper body the exact same size as mine and then a, a lower body like from the waist down about five sizes smaller and i'm just like were they a bodybuilder but a very small one like i just don't know uh, but I love that. That's probably one of the best things I've found in a, in a clothing charity shop. But in a general charity shop, the best thing I found in a country Victorian one, I forget where I was, but I always look in them because you sometimes find like really old school, great uh, board games. And a lot of the old school board games are, are really not great. So, you know, you have to get lucky. But I found just a not only a copy of Boggle in the like 1970s box, but it had all the dice. And I was so excited because I didn't have a copy of Boggle. I was like, yes, I'll have that. And in a similar vein, I also found a copy of uh, Scotland Yard, which is a classic board game where one player is the criminal and everyone else are detectives trying to figure out where they're going throughout London. And it's an older edition of that game, which is quite a beautiful artifact. And it is missing, unfortunately, a few pieces, which means it's not really playable. But still, I was glad to find that. It was great. Can I add one actually? That of course. Was, like my best, my best actual thing that I used in my life was I was going to the screening of The Great Gatsby when I worked at Cinema Nova. We didn't know at the time that the movie was going to be terrible, but we were dressing up to go to it. And I went to an op shop the day of to try and find the right shoes for the costume that I had made painstakingly over the previous few weeks. And I found this pair of gold high heels that were very high. And I was like, I'm not going to be able to wear these because I'm not good at wearing high heels. I fall over and start complaining to everyone within five minutes of how much my feet hurt, um, which makes my conversation for the whole night not very exciting. Um, and I put them on and they didn't hurt. They fit perfectly. And they'd been broken in by someone who feels like they had the exact same feet as me. And I was like, this isn't going to last. I'm going to bring a pair of flats just in case. And I was able to wear them all night with no issues at all. I wore them to weddings and everything until they fell to pieces and they could not be fixed. But they were like magical shoes that I don't know how they existed, but they were great. And that's the best thing I've ever found in a charity shop. Excellent. They're like $8. It was great. Oh, that's like a fairy tale. That's a modern retelling of a fairy tale. Just married to comfort. I was just thinking that Liz becomes a time traveler in a few years' time, <laughs> finds the shoes, breaks them in, goes back, leaves them in the shop for her to find it because they're a perfect fit. <laughs> oh, that means the suffering is yet to come, but it's worth it. Oh, yeah. But, you know, we've taken it full circle. Oh, mm. so great. Oh, look, yeah. that kind of brings us to the end of the episode, though. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. If our listeners want to find you and listen to or read your work, you mentioned Arts Hub before, but if they want to listen to your show on Triple R, one of our local community radio stations here in Melbourne, uh, how can they find your show? When is it on? And how can they listen to it if they're not in Melbourne? The show is called Smart Arts. It's on every Thursday morning from 9am until midday Australian time. And it's available, you can stream it at rrr.org.au. And the show is called Smart Arts, as I said. And my arts writing is usually found occasionally elsewhere. But the website I work for is called Arts Hub. And that's artshub.com.au. And that's where you'll find me writing about the Australian performing arts sector in all its varied glories and glitches. Thank you, Richard. It's so wonderful to have you on. Liz and Ben, it's been an absolute pleasure. So thank you so much. Thank you for introducing me to a Terry Pratchett short story I'd never read before. Uh, and thank you for a really fun conversation. Thank you for teaching me so much about King Arthur's like, legend that I did not know and would never have picked up in this story if you had not come on and told me all of those things. This is uh, the value of many, many, many years spent playing role-playing games and, yes. and reading kind of lots of Arthurian fiction as a teenager and in my 20s. 
I feel like there's a lot of things I know about, particularly because of World of Darkness games. Like, there's a lot of bits of mythology and folklore. But I've come to really doubt how much of it has anything to do with what the real world folklore is and how much of it was fictional. So, I'm having a real conflict about whether all this information I have in my brain is actually useful in any other context. I don't know. I guess we'll find out. Only way to find out for sure is to study a course in folklore or start reading heavily. Read more. Well, look, I feel like this podcast is very much a good excuse to do that. So, yes, I'm inspired. Something else that I find inspiring is some of the things that our listeners have been up to. And in fact, some of our listeners are in some upcoming Discworld theatre productions in Australia. So if you're in Adelaide, get along to Bakehouse Theatre. They're doing Weird Sisters from November 17 to 27. And in Perth at the Rolly Stone Theatre, uh, they're doing Hogfather from November the 26th to December the 3rd. Uh, that's all happening in 2021, just in case you're listening to this in the future. But whenever you're listening to this, we should also thank you, listener, because without you, there's no point in us doing this. So thank you so much for listening to us, uh, for following the podcast on your podcast directory of choice and for telling your friends about it if you do that. Um, we know we've had a few new listeners in the last few months, which has been really lovely to see. So welcome if you're a new listener and you're just getting up to this episode now. Without you and without our subscribers who help support the podcast and make it sustainable for us to keep making it, we certainly wouldn't have reached 49 episodes and we wouldn't be reaching next month our 50th episode. And Liz, we're cooking up something a little bit special for our 50th episode. Yeah, that's right. We're doing Nanny Og's cookbook, which I'm very excited about. I've never read it before. No, me either. And I, it's, we're not just going to read it. We're going to try and cook some of the recipes from the book, not all of which are jokes. And to join us, we're welcoming back our first ever guest from way back, Prechat episode one and also episode three, because we had her back almost immediately back then, comedian and author Cal Wilson, which is going to be so great. We haven't spoken to Cal for a long time. Obviously, a lot has happened to her and us and to the world in general since we last spoke to her. Uh, but we're going to have a great time discussing Nanny Og's cookbook. And because it is our 50th episode, there might be a few other special things happening as well. But I will not spoil those for you. Just watch your podcast feed. That's all I'll say. But if you've got any questions about Nanny Og's cookbook, about the recipes, about her etiquette advice, uh, or about any of the witticisms and other characters that appear in the book, please do send them in. I think we'll also take a few general questions about the podcast if anyone wants to ask those just because it is our 50th episode. Do send those in using the hashtag Pratchat50, or you can email us at chat at pratchatpodcast.com. But until next time, please, please remember not to make eye contact with your past self. You've been listening to Pratchat, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Richard Watts. Pratchat is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchat Podcast and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via pratchatpodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat49. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrors. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.